Since January, we've been working our way through the life of Jacob under the heading, A Life Less Ordinary. And we've gone through the book of Genesis. We've seen in Jacob this sort of guy we can relate to. He's not like maybe a Moses or Elijah figure. He's a bit more down to earth. He's earthy. He's human. We can see his faults and we can recognize with them a lot of the time. Issues like sibling rivalry, parental favoritism, falling in love and advancing career. We've seen all of those. And there's something ordinary about them. Something that could conceivably happen to us. However, chapter 34, that doesn't seem like ordinary life at all. Chapter 34, it just comes as a complete shock in the life of Jacob. I just wonder what you were thinking exactly as that was read out. What shocked you the most about it? Was it the rape and kidnapping of Dinah? Was it the complete lack of remorse shown by Shechem? Was it the inaction and indifference of Jacob, her father? Or the murderous, genocidal, scheming revenge of the brothers? There's a lot to shock us in this passage. It doesn't seem like real life. It just comes out of nowhere. But isn't that how all disasters appear to us? One moment, one moment life seems to be going fine. And then out of the blue, something comes to totally shake us and devastate us and turn our lives upside down. People often going through tragic situations, they describe it as maybe an out-of-body circumstance or as if it's not reality. You you say things like, this can't be happening to me. You, You hear about these things in the news, but it doesn't just happen in my world. It just came out of nowhere. And very often that is the case. These tragic circumstances, they do just come out of nowhere. But is that what's happening in this story? I don't think so. The writer seems to point to culpability, which just makes these events all the more sickening, doesn't it? To know that they could have been avoided. See, this is a story of Jacob's failure as a father. There are many other failures in this story too. There are many, many. But is Jacob God's chosen man who's marked out as the worst offender? And we shall look at Jacob under two failures. The first is a father of failed priorities. So we're skipping over chapter 33, but we'll come back to that at the end and with the meeting with Esau. But after last week's sermon, we see Jacob, he's finally in a good place He seems to be content and secure that God is his father. However, there is an ominous end to chapter 33. If you have the passage in front of you, you can maybe look that up. So Jacob had made a vow earlier in his life that he would return to Bethel. That was back in chapter 28. And he would set up an an altar there. But instead, look at the end of chapter 33. He arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan, and camped within sight of the city, paying 100 pieces of silver for a field. Now that's an expensive campsite. In fact, it's more than that. This was Jacob settling down. See, Shechem was a very prosperous area, a highly highly desirable postcode. Moving there was completely a business decision. We've already seen how sharp and talented a businessman that Jacob is. He uses every opportunity to drive that. So how could he pass up this golden opportunity when going past Shechem? 
But while the opportunity was good for his business, it neglected what was best for his family. And it neglected his commitment and promise to God. So there's some very ominous words. He camped within sight of the city. And this is what's going to come back and bite him. So now we're at the start of chapter 34, which Dave read for us. And by this stage, business must have been going really well for Jacob. Um, Going by the ages that the children seem to be, he's probably been there about 10 years. It must have been hard to leave a place like that when things are going so well. You could understand that, couldn't you? Job is going well. Your pay is increasing year upon year. His status is increasing. People are looking at him and admiring him. Why would he leave? He's worked so hard. He's sacrificed so much to get to where he is. It's finally all going well and coming together for him. But as with these things, his business success was fueled by sacrifices and concessions. Sacrifices that in themselves didn't seem very great, but year on year added up and made a significant impact upon his family. So verse 1, we're introduced to Dinah. So she's the daughter of Jacob's unloved wife, Leah. That's probably quite important. She's Jacob's only daughter. Not only that, not that he ever shows really particular interest in her or concern for her. In fact, that's the thing that shocks me most through this passage. See, again and again, the effects of favoritism are devastating this family. As we're introduced to Dinah in verse 1, her behavior is hinted at as being slightly improper. So at this stage, Dinah would be an impressionable 14 or 15-year-old. Yet she was allowed to go out with the women of the land, a phrase that's just so loaded with negative connotations of indecent behavior. So in ancient cultures, in Middle Eastern cultures, and some current Middle Eastern cultures, women wouldn't, young women wouldn't be allowed to go out without maybe the escort of their brothers or to go in large groups, maybe with their mother or some older women in the family. And that's largely for their safety. And this practice makes a lot of sense, especially when you consider the reputation Canaan had. As the Bible tells us, it's a land full of um, illicit sexual behavior and a land where there's absolutely no law. So I see verse 1 as neglectful parenting on Jacob's part. See, Jacob is the father and leader of his family. He himself, he's not modeled proper distancing from the culture around him. He camped close to Shechem. He was fully involved in life there. He assimilated in. See, that's been Jacob's desire to assimilate, to become one, to be one of the people, to play down his distinctives as a man of God. You see, that's what brings these events about. His children had no example of a distinctive life that the special family of God was called to live. So how could Dinah know any better if she hasn't seen her father do it? So the negative connotations of verse 1 precede the horrible events of verse 2. The ruler of the area called Shechem comes across the young Dinah. He saw her, he took her, and he raped her. I don't need to expand on that verse, that three-verb description. That's enough to chill us. I will say, however, that our shock and disgust at this isn't just a function of our time. We're maybe more attuned to this. The Bible writer was disgusted by this. It's not that they enjoyed barbaric stories. In fact, the NIV slightly euphemizes the language. Moses was much more to the point. 
See, Moses wants this passage to scream out loudly because the message behind it is of such importance. You might think, why don't we just skip over this? This is a bit of a grim story. But with such attention drawn to it by the Bible writer, we can't ignore it. Because this passage is a strong warning to us. Jacob didn't know this devastating event was on the horizon. But as we've seen, it could have been avoided if he knew. So let's consider this morning as fair warning for us. So look with me to verse 3. After abusing and humiliating Dinah, Shechem begins to show tenderness and love to her. What a sting that the tenderness and love actually comes from her abuser and not her father. He does this so much so that he wants her and his wife. And he's extremely determined for this to happen. He even gets his father on the case to maybe bankroll the wedding. He's willing to pay a great price. So Shechem's father, Hamar, he acts. And his action, well, that again comes in contrast to Jacob's inaction for the sake of his daughter. And we see verse 5. He's just quiet. He doesn't tell his sons. He tells nobody. He just stays silent. So it's left to Shechem and Hamar to unashamedly approach Jacob. There's no apology, no signs of remorse. Instead, the wickedness is framed as something positive. It's true love. My my son wants to marry your daughter. No mention of the rape, let alone the fact that they've actually still got Dinah kidnapped and back in his house. Now that the evil events, they've been papered over with some wedding invitations, Hamar speaks more shrewdly. Jacob had a reputation, and Hamar speaks straight to that. Look at verse 9 and 10. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourself. You can settle among us. This land's open to you. Live in it. Trade in it. Acquire property in it. Now that's Jacob's language. That's business talk. That allows the distinctives to be broken down and a way for him to be one of them. Shechem must have seen that his father's approach was good because he jumps on it. Look how he does that as well. Jacob, I'll pay you a great deal of money for your daughter. I'll pay you handsomely and you'll turn a blind eye to what's happened. See, Jacob's priorities are being severely tested. Business or family culture's way or God's way. So what is the message that Shechem and Hamar are trying to put across? What's this? Be like us. Don't be distinctive. See, what we're doing, that's not that wrong. Come closer and see for yourself. Do you know all this standing out as a man of God, that's bad for your business. Play that down and be a bit more like us and you'll get invited to the parties. You'll have more friends. Actually, there's probably quite a bit of truth in what they're saying. If we stand out as people of God, that may be bad for our social life, for our standing. It may even have an impact on our career if we choose to prioritize other things. But as Shechem asks, what is your price? What are you willing to sacrifice for better career, social standing, or even for your hobbies and interests? Are you willing to sacrifice family? And are you willing to sacrifice the life God has called you to? And this is something I've had a chance to think about this week, and it's extremely convicting. We all desire for people 
to like us. And sometimes living as a follower of Jesus means we won't be the most popular person on the street. We thought a lot about this when we looked at 1 Peter in the autumn. But notice the strong warning this passage gives against assimilation. If we assimilate, we lose our distinctiveness. If being a Christian means little more to us than how we spend an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, then this passage warns us that's going to have disastrous effects on us, on our family, and also on our other relationships, especially our church relationships. Do any of our priorities come at the expense of spiritual growth for us and those around us? Our second heading, looking at Jacob, he is a father of field spiritual leadership. Notice Jacob still hasn't said very much yet. That's quite telling. So we'll leave him quietly in the corner for now. The brothers, they were out in the field when the events took place. Because Jacob was quiet about it, they hadn't heard. But eventually word did get to them. And as they arrived back at the house, who do they see there but Hamar and Shechem? That must have made their stomachs sick. Look at verse 7. The boys were full of grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. A thing that should not be done. Until we read about the brother's reaction, we're not actually told that this is wrong. It didn't come from Shechem and it didn't come from Jacob. So that reaction of grief and fury seems like the appropriate response to what's happened, doesn't it? Although it's what they do with this grief and fury that is so wrong. So they listen to the offers made by Hamar and Shechem. They're not taken in by this assimilation nonsense at all. The fury still bubbling within them. They come up with their own plan. And verse 13 warns us, this is going to be a deceitful, wicked plan. Because of the lack of leadership from their father, he hasn't stepped up, so they step into that position. They take over the negotiations. They become the men of the house, even though they're just the teenagers. So they request of Shechem that all the men in his town would become circumcised like the children of Israel. Thinking this through, Shechem thinks, okay, assimilation in mind, this is good. I can make a tokenistic gesture, take something small of your culture, but what's going to happen in return? You're going to take the majority of my culture and my values on you when you accept this. It may seem strange to you that the the men of the city would agree to such a thing, but look how Shechem persuades them. If you get Jacob to assimilate, they'll be able to take advantage of his wealth. Again, it's just the writer undermining this assimilation. It's fueled by greed and not, not anything else. So with the offer accepted, the men of the city in pain, Levi and Simeon, two of the four full brothers of Dinah, they wait until the third day. So that's when the pain's going to be at its most severe. The fever's going to be high. And they perform a brutal massacre, attacking defenseless men. Two of them are able to take out an entire city. And they free their sister and take her home. Then the other brothers, they jump in. They loot the city, carry off all the wealth, and carry off its women and children. This is barbaric, especially from the family of God. It's not a proportional response. It's certainly more wicked than what Shechem has done 
many murdered, a whole city defiled. And notice a further sin of the sons. The sons took the sign of the covenant that was given to Jacob. That's the sign of circumcision, this precious sign that promised that their family would be a blessing to the whole world. And they took this sign of blessing and used it as the centerpiece of their murderous plot. They used it to harm, to destroy, and to defile. Where's God in this? What are they thinking? Of course they're not thinking about this in the slightest. They don't think about God once. God's not mentioned at all in this chapter. Not by the sons. Not by Jacob. God isn't mentioned. Jacob hardly features. That's no coincidence. These two things are related. Jacob's leadership as a father was to be one of spiritual leadership. So when he chooses to be absent, he chooses for the influence of God upon his family to be absent. When Jacob does feature, he's just mostly a silent or an active party. Just look through the passage. At every stage, Jacob's silence is deafening. You see, what Jacob is doing here, he's abdicating his responsibility as a father and leader of the family. He may have been the big man in the business world, but do you know what? In his family, he was nothing. He wasn't stepping up. He was allowing his sons to take that position. He was a coward there. He's either physically not there, or when he was present, he wasn't really there. And this is what creates that huge leadership void that the sons are able to step into with disastrous consequences. They should be nowhere near negotiations. There's a huge God void here too. When Jacob finally does speak, we've been waiting for these words. It comes in the last two verses of the chapter. But what he says is just deeply disappointing. This is what he says to Levi and Simeon. You've brought trouble on me by making a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites the people living in this land, we are few in number. And if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. So what are Jacob's interests here? Just completely himself. He is scared. His business will suffer because no one will trade with him. He'll be a hated man in the country. The brothers by no means on a good moral platform to be the judges. But the writer gives them the last word in this chapter, which I think is very important. It's a stinging rebuke to Jacob. Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Jacob can't answer this. Of course the answer is no. But Jacob hasn't been thinking along these lines at all. He hasn't been thinking about his responsibilities as a father to his family. To read this chapter, we're constantly reminded of family relationships. Pretty much every time a character is mentioned, you'll see it's linked to what their family relation is. You know, father of Dinah, daughter of Leah, and father of Shechem. Pretty much for every character. The point being, Jacob, she was your daughter. They're your sons. Where were you on all of this? Where was your leadership? Where were your priorities? Where was your love? The two failings of Jacob, failure of priorities, see, for the sake of business and reputation, he sacrificed his family's best interests and he lost big. 
his priority should have been to walk in obedience to the call God had given him to go to Bethel. And second, it was a failure of spiritual leadership. You abdicated your responsibilities as a father and you let your daughter go alone in the city. You didn't provide leadership and allowed your sons to take that position. You, you didn't bring God into your family, the influence of his word on them. And really these two failures can be summarized as a failure of love. I wonder what Jacob's excuse could have been. Probably like something like, I got distracted, I got busy, there were other opportunities put in front of me. They were hard to turn down. See, Jacob hasn't progressed in his walk with God. It's damaged those around him. It's clear what his family really needed from him was, as a father was that strong example and leadership, him to model distinctiveness in that land, him to be showing them that he was being obedient to God's call. If they were able to observe that behavior in him, they would have picked that up too. They would see the importance of following God's call and having his priorities first, not personal gains. That's what would have influenced his children for good to show Jacob showing himself progressing day by day. Not showing perfection, but showing progression. Imagine thinking about these verses this morning as being quite sobering for many here. Not least for fathers, if you make a comparison with Jacob. Don't abdicate your responsibilities of spiritual leadership in the home. Make sure your family sees you progressing and that you're ridding yourself of sin. Don't make the compromises. What father here this morning can say that they've kept that standard perfectly? Of course, this casts much wider than that. We've all got responsibilities in our different relationships, within our family relationships, wives, grandparents, children. We've all got to make decisions in these, regard, these relationships regarding our priorities, how we spend our time, and how, what of ourselves we show to them including how do we make God central in our relationships? Which of us can now say we haven't failed in those relationships? And in Kirkpatrick, we take very seriously our responsibilities to the church family, to one another, as we sit here this morning. The health of our community is reliant on the health of the individuals progressing, but also showing that progression to others around us. How are we doing in that? It's very possible that after thinking about this, we can go away with the guilt of failure hanging above us because this passage so strongly points out failure. It's very possible that we can go away this morning feeling brokenhearted because this reminds us of how we've been failed by others in our relationships. But we're not going to leave things there. In a chapter that doesn't mention God, it's likely there's not going to be a lot of hope. But let's look back and look forward in the story where we can see God and rediscover our hope. So first, looking back into chapter 33, Jacob had a completely failed relationship with his brother Esau. The last time they met, Esau wanted to murder him. That's an extreme failure of relationship. So when Jacob is passing close to his land, the fear was great because he thought, what if my brother still wants to kill me? 
The drama in 32 that we saw last week was really quite intense. These 400 militiamen coming with Esau, sweeping over the desert sand dunes. What's going to happen? But then Jacob, he had the life-changing event. He met with God. He wrestled with God. And do you know what God did? God changed in Jacob's heart. This man who was so desperate for the blessing of his earthly father Isaac all his life now became inclined to the blessing of his heavenly father. God changed his heart and Jacob is now secure. If you look across chapter 33, unfortunately we don't have time to go through it in detail, but Jacob is changed by this security, knowing he is security in God as a perfect father. Instead of cowering at the back where he was in chapter 32, he leads his family at the front with no fear. Instead of sending gifts to Esau to appease him and placate him, he now sends gifts to Esau to bless him because he is so secure in his relationship with God as father that he's able to now extend blessing to others. Of course, Jacob doesn't progress in his faith and we see that in 34, but the good father remains the same. He has not changed We may have had family who have failed us, but through Jesus we have access to the great Father, the one who meets our every need. And we thought about that in detail last week. And it was great to think about that, about Abba Father, the Father who's concerned with our progression and who will be with us every step of the way in that. He's the Father we need because He is the Father that never fails. The New Testament shows us how we can call him Father. In John chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, Yet to all that received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you'd like to think further about how good it is to have God as our Father, I'd recommend listening back to last week's sermon, what we discussed there. But also, a read through chapter 33 would be great just to see the security of standing that Jacob now has, even though he isn't a perfect man. So now we've looked back, let's quickly look forward. Jacob and his family, they've done an incredibly wicked thing, so why does God continue to bless them? Why doesn't he cut them off? They haven't earned anything. Well, we've been looking at the life of Jacob long enough to know that throughout his life he hasn't earned anything. He's not a good man. He's not very likable. But God chose him to be his father of his people. And because God chose him, he was secure. God was going to keep his promise to him no matter what, even when Jacob fails horrendously. All of us have failed in relationships. And this morning may have made you feel guilty about that. Remember, God does not abandon his people when they fail. Instead, he picks them up. He puts them back on their feet and he encourages them to go forward. He gives us these warnings through his word and we're to respond to them. He's the good father who gives us this opportunity. In a moment, we're going to sing the words, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sins upon that cross. Any guilt or sin we've identified today we know that if we're trusting in Jesus, that's already 
been placed on the cross. He's the good father who's provided this forgiveness for us. And he's the good father who's with us as we progress and try and live in his way. So this morning, I want us all to remember the perfect father, the one who doesn't fail. And if we've identified failure, then all the more reason to come to him for forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Dear Father in heaven, we come to you with humble hearts as we recognize our failure within ourselves, the way we we haven't lived the way you've called us in our relationships. We failed others by not progressing ourselves in our walk with you. But Father, help us not to be crippled by this guilt, but let us bring it to you, knowing that you forgive. We saw how you were faithful to Jacob, and despite his sin, you held on to him, and you were faithful to him and brought him to yourself. And help us to be able to walk in the freedom that that gives. Father, we pray for any of us here this morning who feel the wounds of relationships. I pray for comfort and healing in these. And I pray that we'll all see that the perfect Father is you and that we'll only have full security when we trust in you. We pray these things to you, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.